two of the most influential bands in music history. Joy Division held this mythology. Not knowing the history, young people hear New Order and they love it. One incredible tale. The uncompromising, rebellious, we push the envelope. There's just like that darker undercurrent. Just there's nothing like it. They sort of changed the world twice. This is Transmissions, the definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. The year is 1982. Britain is gearing up to go to war with Argentina over the Falkland Islands. Michael Jackson releases Thriller. Steven Spielberg's E.T. is enchanting cinema-goers. Meanwhile, in Manchester, a nightclub is about to open which would change the city and club culture forever. When it first opened, you went in and it was just, what is this? But this wasn't just a normal 80s high street nightclub with a sparkly rotating disco ball and fluorescent neon lighting. It's the only club I've ever been in that looks better in daylight. It was beautiful in daylight. This was a club which embodied the experimental flair of factory records. They had fashion shows in there. They commissioned artist work. Madonna played her first UK gig there. A venue which would become the centre of an explosive cultural movement. Some people had the best night of a life in there. To me, it was just a terrible idea. <laughs> an idea bankrolled by the sales of Joy Division and New Order Records. It entertained an entire city at a pot grew's expense for 16 years. In the spring of 82, the single Temptation introduced the UK chart to New Order's new beat-driven sound. At the same time, factory boss Tony Wilson was stateside enjoying the New York nightlife of Paradise Garage and Danceteria. Clubs frequented by the likes of a young Madonna and which were reinventing the idea of the discotheque. The club as an inclusive space, one which married the emerging garage music scene with art and fashion. Here's Tony in conversation with the documentary maker James Nice in 2005. I mean, I've always loved America, and really that, despite the first trip to America for Factory being curtailed by Ian dying, I went over a few weeks later, and in fact heard rap music for the first time, and got back to Disbury and rang up this record shop in Harlem and tried to sign the Furious Five, and was told to fuck off Whitey. But nevertheless, we just loved the clubs. And being Mancunians, we were a bit annoyed that there was, you know, there was just rafters in Manchester. Why can't we have a club like Danceteria or Hurrahs? Once back in the UK, Tony and manager Rob Gretton floated the idea of setting up a similar club in Manchester. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I didn't really understand it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you did understand it, but I mean, Rob just turned up and oh, I'm doing a club. I, I thought it was just going to be like the Russell Club. Yeah, or Rafters or something. Or Rafters. Yeah. <laughs> Put bands on, have a bit of a DJ yeah. and some burgers. And a bar. And a bar. I mean, what... <laughs> What else do you need? Oh, and a bit of a dance floor. Uh, yeah, well, obviously, yeah. And some tables and chairs. I mean, you don't yeah. need much. No. Well, we thought that, didn't we? Well, that's what we thought. Oh, 
With Tony's imagination running away with him, not for the first time, he spotted what he thought was the perfect venue for Factory's new club. It was time to talk to the money men. There's one day I went around Manchester, me and Rob, doing loans. And I think the third place we got to, where I had to sign my house away, I said to Rob, I've already signed the house in the last two meetings. He says, exactly, sign it again. So we just kept signing things. With the financing sorted, Factory Records were now the leaseholders of 11 to 13 Whitworth Street West, a former boat showroom located on the Rochdale Canal and essentially just a cavernous warehouse. To reimagine the characterless space as a nightclub that might rival those of New York, Tony and Rob turned to Factory's art director, Peter Saville. I think that Factory thought that Peter would design the club because he designed everything else that they had. Interior designer, Ben Kelly. And when Peter saw the premises, I think he thought, there's absolutely no way could I do this, but I know a man who can. And of course I'd known Ben for a few years you know, before. And then that's why I proposed that Ben did it. And the next thing I knew, I found myself on a train going to Manchester and went into the building, which was in a terrible state. And I can remember meeting Tony Wilson and I believe Rob Gretton. And I think probably halfway through going round the club, Alan Erasmus arrived. And they took me on a kind of tour of this place. We got back to the beginning and um, they looked at me and said, do you want the job? And I looked back at them and then I said, of course I want the job. Yes, please. Ben Kelly had made a name for himself working as part of the punk scene in London, where he designed a rehearsal room for the Sex Pistols and the front of Vivian Westwood's boutique, Sex. He was the perfect person to do it because what mattered to me the most was that it gave substance to the idea of Factory. I was well versed with all of Peter's earlier work and the fact that Factory, you know, artwork and the production of the sleeves, they, they were most unusual. And they seemed to allow for a lot of creative freedom, which of course is what they did. Tony Wilson. The sheer fortune of us all falling into collaboration with the boy who turns out to be the greatest graphic designer of the second half of the 20th century. You know, our record sleeves were incredibly beautifully designed, so to have an incredibly beautifully designed club seemed entirely natural, and Peter chose Ben to do it. So it all seemed to us a continuum. It didn't seem as if we were suddenly changing track and going glossy. Not the case at all. So in terms of a brief, the brief was really a dance floor, a stage, a main bar, maybe some other bars, toilets, and something in the basement. And that was about it as far as the brief went. There was never a talk of any budget or any other issues whatsoever. They, they had run nightclubs, but on a very modest scale, in a very unprofessional manner, making losses. So the client group were a group that had never commissioned the design of a nightclub before to a designer who'd never designed a nightclub before. So we all had a massive amount of naivety. While Ben set about creating an arresting design for the new club, the team at Factory had decided on a name, the Hacienda. The Hacienda must be built, shouted the slogan of a radical group of avant-garde artists, intellectuals and political theorists who formed in post-war Europe. They called themselves Situationist International. 
and so Factory Records decided to take their slogan literally. Hacienda was also, fittingly, a Spanish word describing a large ranch or estate. And if that wasn't enough, the C with a little Spanish tail and the I in Hacienda resembled the club's factory catalogue number 51. Somebody said it was going to be called the Hacienda. I didn't know about the situationist manifesto and the quote that it came from at that time. And I thought it was awful. You know, it was like a kind of a Mexican adobe house somewhere with all of the connotations behind that. But then when I learnt where the quote came from and eventually I realised it was a stroke of genius. You know, Factory was an idea in what's, can we say, that the former industrial psyche of Manchester. But the Hacienda made it happen in time and in place. Drawing on this post-industrial theme, Ben set about creating what he saw as a people's palace. The space was painted in cool blue and grey tones. Yellow and black diagonal construction stripes were painted on steel columns. Warning marks and cat's eyes mapped the dance floor. From outside, the only clue as to what lay within was a hand-carved granite nameplate. Fact 51, the Hacienda. To me, it was like creating a giant piece of sculpture. That's how I saw it. It was like a big art piece to me. I was interested in industrial materials, materials and fittings used out of context. The artist Marcel Duchamp had a great influence on me and the notion of the found object. So I was building up this kind of language of materials, which were all practical, robust materials, I was interested in the use of colour, bright colour, industrial light fittings. So it was a kind of mixture of all sorts of influences that developed into my palette, my handwriting, my style. You know, it looked like him. It was Ben's aesthetic. So to me, it looked like Ben, but on a bigger scale than anything really that he'd done before. I described it as a cathedral-like space. The single volume of the main space was huge. The weird thing about it, of course, was that it had roof lights to it, so daylight came into what was going to become a nightclub. But the big question was whether Manchester was ready for a superclub that took its cues from the edgy New York scene. Would the Manchester's new romantic sports casuals and indie fans flock to a warehouse decked out in post-industrial chic? Tony Wilson again. Someone said, just before we opened the Hacienda, they had a look round and said, excuse me, who have you done this for? And we went, the kids. And they said, have you seen the kids recently? Have you been to rafters? What are they wearing? Well, they were wearing grey raincoats. They said, excuse me. And we went, oh yeah, sorry. We did it for ourselves. With Ben Kelly and his team working right down to the wire, legend is the paint on the dance floor was still wet as the first punter stepped onto it. The Hacienda flung open its doors on the 21st of March, 1982. You went in and it was just, what is this? Why is it so bright? Why is it so big? Why isn't it downstairs? When you walk in there for the first time, it was absolutely amazing. You knew you were in somewhere special. This is Hugh and Clark, the Hacienda's first ever resident DJ. It wasn't another club that I'd ever known and worked in that looked like that. It's just a totally unique 
very futuristic. It was amazing. It just kind of like totally blew my head. And it blew the head of everybody that came in there for the first time to see it. And people actually did come in just to see it. It had become an instant tourist attraction. For the opening night, the ever-playful Tony Wilson had booked the decidedly old-school and frequently offensive Northern comic Bernard Manning. But for Stephen Morris, there was trouble before he even got through the door. And it's like, sorry, mate, you're not coming in. It's members only tonight. And it's like, don't, don't, don't <laughs> tell him, tell him who you are, tell him who you are. I'm not telling him who I am. Look, there's Tony. Don't, don't, oh, he's gone. No, let's in, mate. Designer Ben Kelly. I was there on the opening night, which was uh, fabulously chaotic. When the comedian Bernard Manning had been invited, and he came on stage and took a look around and said, I've played some shitholes in my time, but this takes the biscuit, and walked off stage and I think gave his feedback. The crowd was, it was difficult to de- define the crowd. It was filled with members of all the different groups that existed. There were punks in there, there were rockers in there, there were soul heads in there, there were jazz aficionados in there, there was reggae people, all sorts. Because when the Hacienda opened, it was the new kid on the block and everybody wanted to be in there. So you had all the hairdressers and you had all the trendies, everybody was just milling around. For me as a DJ, seeing that kind of crowd, it was really difficult trying to work out what I can play that was going to please every single one of them. With Ewan trying to work out what music to play, Stephen noticed a flaw in his new club. The sound system was terrible. The sound was terrible. Remember the opening night, standing on balcony and the question everybody asked you was what do you think <laughs> all you could say was i don't know what do you think <laughs> and i can remember someone put anarchy in the uk on the dj probably thinking oh this is a good song who is it <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like a washing it's machine just, it did sound like a washing machine yeah and i thought oh, i'll have to do something about this you're talking about a building that used to be a boat showroom there was no acoustic in there. It was just like bare walls and, you know, bricks and glass and stuff. And I remember five minutes before we actually opened the door of the Hacienda, they decided to test the sound system. And so they tested it with a, a classical music track. They put it on. Jack the system up, it sounded absolutely fantastic. It was beautiful. It just filled every, you know, nook and cranny of the club. And then, when that had finished and the club doors opened and people came in and I started playing stuff that had a kick drum on it, then it started echoing all over the place. Tony Wilson's first wife, Lindsay Reid. 
there was some reason why I wasn't there the opening night, but I was there the second night. Because Tony and I were on a break at the time. But I do, just to show you how uncool the Hacienda was on the day after the opening night, he and I danced to Mr. and Mrs. Jones. <laughs> a classic 70s song. I remember that distinctly because it seemed appropriate because our marriage was, he was trying to get me back and I was living in London and it seemed appropriate that Mr. and Mrs. Jones had a thing going on. To help fund the lavish refit of 11 to 13 Whitwood Street West, New Order were booked to play the brand new Hacienda on the 26th of June. The first time we played the Hacienda, power went off. <laughs> Two songs. Was it? <laughs> power went off. Someone's trying to tell you something, aren't they? New Order bassist, Peter Hook. First time we played there, it wasn't a great occasion. We hated playing Manchester because it meant that all your mates were pissed and you weren't because you were spending all your time making sure everybody had got in the bloody gaff. But before the gig had even started, Stephen Morris was having yet more trouble getting into his new club. We'd go after rehearsals and he said, oh, yeah, you can come in, mate, but not her. He said, why? It's Jenny and Gilbert says there's one in there already. <laughs> It was your sister, Kim. Yeah. Who, there is a certain physical similarity <laughs> between you. She'd gone as your stunt double, hadn't she? <laughs> yeah. We needed to play to finance the club, which was the simple reason that we played there. Every time we played there, our appearance fee would go straight back into the Hacienda to keep it going. They were never viewed as successful for us because it was always under sufferance. The band were unhappy on stage and some of the crowd were less than impressed too. Lindsay Reid. When it first opened, it didn't seem appropriate to what it was supposed to be because the idea then was that it would be a live venue. Well, it never worked as a live venue. The sound was dreadful and the space didn't work when it was empty. It just, you know, as I say, I always sat downstairs in the gay traitor bar because nobody'd want to sit up there in this big cavernous hall when it was empty. Just a few weeks after it first opened its doors, more flaws in the radical design of the club were starting to show. How many clubs had you been in which had skylights? <laughs> I mean, admittedly, it isn't sunny that often in Manchester, yeah. but... <sighs> should have thought of that. Should have thought of that. It's too light. It's horrible when it's crowded. It's very nice when it's empty. But there aren't enough dark corners and there's no back room. Yeah, that's, you think a club should be dark, a place where you can go and hide somewhere. I think there's got to be some sex and some threat. The skylights may have been an issue, but there were more fundamental problems at play. Why put the toilets <laughs> below sea level? <laughs> that was an accident waiting to happen and it did happen. I've been knowing a lot about plumbing, <laughs> thanks to the Hacienda. Well, this stage layout wasn't very good, was it? They'd put the stage at the wrong no, end of the club. No, 
I've spoke to Ben Kelly about this. <laughs> I said, why did you put the stage there? And he comes out with an answer that almost makes sense. I think I've, had a, I've never <laughs> been to a club before. Designer Ben Kelly. The big decision which Tony was talking about was where does the stage go and where does the main bar go? And maybe Tony said it first, maybe I said it first, but the bar had to go at the end. If the stage went at the end, it would become a venue. It was never meant to be a venue. It was meant to be a flexible nightclub that could do many, many different things, which indeed it did over the years, many different things. The DJ box in the end of it at the time was hidden behind the stage and the DJ wasn't visible. It was kind of like underground and the only way that I could see what was going on, there was a little darkened out slit of a window that I could just peer out and see people that was in the club. I couldn't hear the quality of the music at all. And you could see people walking around trying to work out where the DJ was because they wanted to put in requests and stuff and they had no idea where I was. I thought the DJ should be hidden away from sight so that they weren't pestered by the crowd asking them to play their favourite tune, which I know now was a massive mistake, but that was before DJs were kind of controlling the crowd as they did eventually. And so all the DJs could see was people's ankles <laughs> through this slot on the dance floor. And they bitterly complained about that. So eventually on the balcony where they had prime position, this horrible structure was produced. I remember arriving there one day to see this, almost like a glorified garden shed on the balcony, which became the DJ booth. I have no idea to this day who was responsible for designing the thing, whether it ever was designed, but I realised it was completely necessary so that the DJs could control the crowd and have a full sight of the dance floor. It was only later on when they decided to sort of like move the DJ box from where it was by the side of the stage and moved it up on the balcony. From that viewpoint, it was amazing for me because I got to look down on all the people that were in the club at the time, you know what I mean? And it was easy for me to see them and see where they were and use the music that I was playing to kind of like bring them back together again. Tony Wilson and Rob Gretton wanted to emulate the eclectic range of music New Yorkers were hearing in their new clubs. So Hewan's job was to create a similar atmosphere in the Hacienda. My remit basically was to play black music. This is what they wanted me to do. And it was what Tony Wilson and those lot expected me to play. And so I'd be playing sort of like black music and then you'd have all these people that would be there just standing around because that's not their genre of music and stuff. So I had to sort of like venture into stuff like Ryuki Sakamoto, Riot in Lagos and stuff like that, and Heaven 17s. And these were stuff that I, I wouldn't normally play. I wouldn't even buy them, but I had to buy them to play them in the Hacienda because I couldn't just play one type of music. I had to mix and blend all the different styles. And it taught me how to be a proper DJ, basically. The Hacienda aspired to be much more than just a nightclub. At one point, the venue even had a hairdressing salon. And it wasn't just New Order occasionally playing live. The only other Manchester band who came close to their status, the Smiths, played there three times in 1983 alone. James, The Fall, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Inspiral Carpets all played. Even Madonna, 
who recorded her first ever live UK TV appearance at the Hacienda. Madonna! But whether it was the design flaws, the size of the club, or the choice of music, there was one problem that was causing the Hacienda to hemorrhage money. Here's the Happy Mondays and Black Great frontman, Sean Ryder. The only time you had more than 100 people in there was when the Smiths was on, or Simple Minds, or whoever else was playing at the Hacienda at the time, right? There was nobody. You could go in a Wednesday night, right, and, you know, be paranoid that you was the only person in there. Dude, it was empty. You had to have a membership, and you think, why? Who's number two? Why did you presume to think that you could fill a, a building of this size with just the groups that you like? I, I didn't. I never presumed. I Who's didn't. fault, is it? It's, it's, um, it's mostly New Order's fault, really. Right. I'm by by them Four years after the venue opened, Hugh and Clark was DJing in another club across town. And what happened that night would prove to be a pivotal moment, not just for the Hacienda, but Manchester itself. I remember in a club called the Playpen, it used to be called Slack Alice, and it used to be owned by George Beck. And I picked up a record, and I remembered it. It, it was actually called Jack My Dick. That was the title of the track. <laughs> I'm saying, what is this? And we put it on, and we were listening to it on the headphones, and it was, obviously it was totally different from what we'd been listening to at the time. And luckily we had a group of kids in the club who... Eventually, they ended up calling themselves Foot Patrol. And when the first house chat was played, everybody else walked off the floor because nobody had ever heard anything like that. And they stayed on the floor and devised a kind of like dance routine to go with it. And that helped the track to sort of like gain popularity. Hewan started playing Jack My Dick and other house tracks at the Hacienda. It went down so well, a night dedicated to this new sound was created. It was called Nude. And then all of a sudden, something changed. So sudden this change. Lindsay Reid. So you went from the spring of 87, it was deserted, and then suddenly one night I went, and it was absolutely heaving. And people were wild. They were just behaving in the most wild manner, dancing around and hugging each other and wild party atmosphere. It was... I couldn't believe my eyes. And this was the ecstasy revolution, actually. I didn't realise they were all on ecstasy, but... Well, most of them were. But I didn't really like it. I preferred it when it was quiet. The Hacienda, once renowned for looking like an abandoned car park, was now renowned for the queues of hopeful punters snaking round the block four nights a week. One of those hopeful young Mancunians, Liam Gallagher. They never used to let me in. I would always find it hard getting in, but the first time I went, I can't remember much about it. You know, right? I mean, I wasn't a big fan of it, you know what I mean? I wasn't into dance music, you know what I mean? A bit scary as well, you know what I mean? It was a bit like, it was, you know what I mean? I'd have been only like 17, 18 at the time, you know what I mean? So it was a lot, and a lot of people, you know, it was a bit, it was a bit like, ooh, she's a bit mad. So you just hit the bar and find the corner and try and stay out of the way, you know what I mean? I didn't get involved, you know what I mean? Our kid was there 
day in, day in. He was there every week, Noel was, you know what I mean? But it wasn't my thing. Dance music wasn't my kind of thing, you know what I mean? So, so all my mates were into it. I'd sort of be, I'd much prefer the boardwalk, which is where they had the indie nights and all that and the guitar music where we rehearsed as Oasis. So I'd be like, oh, we, are we done now? We're finished, yeah, come on. Arthur Baker, DJ, producer and musician. Obviously, it had a lot to do with that. It was New Order's club, but also the DJs that they picked. As someone with an intimate knowledge of the New York club scene, he understands what made the Hacienda special. They had Pickering and Graham Park and Greg Wilson, and they had great DJs. And then they just picked great acts to uh, to perform there, and it just had a vibe. And Manchester was really sort of, you know, the music scene. I mean, I've talked to Noel Gallagher about it, and he used to go to Hacienda all the time. I mean... And, and, you know, so rockers would go to the Hacienda because it was New Order's club. In New York, you didn't have that. You know, you didn't, in America, the one thing I noticed when I first moved to England were that rock bands had an appreciation for dance music, whereas in America, rock bands at that same time didn't have a clue about it. And I think that's down to bands like New Order, who sort of were rock bands and had a heritage of Joy Division that pretty much everyone loved. And then to sort of get into dance music, they sort of made it all right to do that. And I think the Hacienda was a big part of that. So I think uh, obviously it, it, the heritage of, of that club is huge. And, uh, you know, it's up there with like Paradise Garage and, and a few others, Danceteria, of clubs that were very inspiring and very influential at the same time, you know. Designer Ben Kelly. When ecstasy happened and dance, house music, etc., etc. People were dancing on every square inch that they could dance on, be it the dance floor, the stage. People had never seen anything like it. It took a long time for people to get used to it. It was it had never been seen before in the UK on that scale and that kind of design. The whole thing was an extraordinary experience. You ran the gamut with it, you know, seeing queues around the block, miles of queues going on forever, as opposed to it being half empty. So it it was extraordinary. For Hugh and Clark. His fondest memory of the Hacienda was the finale of his set. At the end of every night, I always had an ending tune, and it was Thunderbirds. So the last record of the night was always Thunderbirds. I'd put Thunderbirds on, and you'd get all these pissed-up people sort of like running around the dance floor with their arms open, you know what I mean? Thunderbirds that go. We, we used to play that every night. As soon as people hear that, they know that that's the final track of the night. It worked really well. The Hacienda was no longer just another struggling nightclub. But according to Peter Hook, both Tony Wilson and Rob Gretton never doubted the club would be a success. I think Rob Gretton's attitude kind of philanthropist, idealist attitude to entertaining and welcoming the people of Manchester was what made it work in the end. You know, you wait, as Tony used to say, wait and these people will come. And even though it took eight years and the only thing we did for eight years was gigs, when Acid House did come, you know, it set up its place in history. Is it true that you only opened the Hacienda to further your career as a disc jockey? Um, it's a good question, though. No. Uh, I never really had a career as a disc jockey anyway. The Hacienda wasn't just an important chapter heading in British music history. It was also helping the regeneration and reinvigoration of the city of Manchester. Uh, 
the hacienda was this sort of how might I put it the inspirational transition in the perception of Manchester designer Peter Saville from being a former industrial city to being a post-industrial city so the place having gone from being reactive to being proactive and the hacienda inspired a lot of the early protagonists of regeneration there's still a lot of the new businesses clubs bars offices in the city which were given this energy and template and inspiration from the hacienda it's kind of like the phoenix reborn to be part of the now for peter hope the city's transformation was thanks to his former singer ian curtis you know the hacienda wouldn't have been there without joy division's success because new order had no success when hacienda opened hacienda changing Manchester as it did was lock, stock and barrel down to Joy Division. I think it's a good idea for a club to be owned by a record company. I, I would say that that depended on the record company. I think it's a good uh, thing that this club is owned by Factory because Factory do have style and do have very uh, distinct image and do... They do have style, yeah. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves. This was just the beginning of the Hacienda story. As you'll hear in later episodes, the Hacienda only added to the chaos on the horizon for Factory Records. Following a theme you may have noticed in this series, problems had a habit of finding new order. Or maybe new order had a habit of finding problems. Peter Hook. Tony was a terrible businessman. Every time someone used to talk about business, he literally would just switch off and if not walk out. Rob Gretton dealt with business in the only way he knew possible, which was by drinking uh, copious amounts of Sapporo. So at the end of every business meeting, we ended up arsehole and I would disappear for uh, two or three days, which was never the answer for anything that we were doing. It's a miracle that we're still friends. It's a miracle I owe you £200,000 and you're, not, you're still in the back with me. Are you still getting away? I still get away. Listen, it's your fault. It's his fault from the bloody hacienda. I'll tell you, God, I mean, the place is papered with bloody money. What can I tell you? To compound things, Factory's other business decisions were becoming increasingly erratic. Bernard Sumner. We had Factory in Zimbabwe for some strange reason. I don't think we ever got any money out of them, but we bought some sort of office space for them. Love Will Tears Apart did really well in Poland, and we got paid in, I don't know, it was either tractor parts or nails that we got paid for. But of course, they all thought it was extremely humorous. Coming up in episode 7, we rewind the tape back to May 1983 to a time of power, corruption and lies. Place of fun, place of interest as well, you know, to try these new recording techniques and get pretty well fucked up 
as well at the same time. We'll hear how New Order's second album helped the band move on from the past and craft a new future. Joy Division fans hated it. They really hated it. And that's like how I knew we were onto a winner, really. Plus, we'll get a masterclass in how to deal with music journalists from bass player Peter Hook. And I just went around, you cheeky bastard, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and threw him down the steps from the Royal Exchange. And Rob went, yeah, looking right, you cheeky bastard. I'm Maxine Peake, and this has been part six of Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy Division and New Order. The series producer is Craig Templeton-Smith. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. <laughs>